from 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, the war for fintech talent continues, but Andy Murray is backing the brakes. Teenagers are the final frontier for wealth managers and Amazon, and nothing is more powerful than a John McAfee tweet, allegedly. All this and more on today's extra special birthday edition of Fintech Insider After Dark. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider After Dark 5. Yes! Yes! For those of you listening at home and around the world, this is our fifth show in front of a live audience this time, coming from our home turf in WeWork Orchid. Good to be back on our home turf. Crowd, crowd, how are you? This is actually our birthday week, so you can see we've got some, uh, some party hats and some birthday things. We are two years old. Uh, we've got all sorts going on. My name is Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, Ross Gallagher. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Correct answer. Uh, <laughs> Rosker, as, as he's affectionately known. And for the first time as my colleague, now a part of 11FS, Sarah Kachansky, how are you? I'm well. It's exciting. I've got a t-shirt and everything. You've got the t-shirt and everything. So tonight is actually the first of two After Darks. We're running a transatlantic event tonight. We finish here tonight, and the next one begins in a few hours in San Francisco, hosted by our American team, Sam Moll, Dub Bobbenhaus, and half of the media team. So half of the media team are here, and half of them are out there. Ross? So that said, I mean, there's an element of competition, right? Yeah, I a little think. bit. We, so, we want you to be louder. Like, super loud. Awesome. And we have got a great show coming up. I'd say a fantastic show. We've got the wall of emojis back. Everybody loves the wall of emoji. Right? Answer. And a lighthearted discussion on the week's biggest and silliest news stories. We're going to have some fun, but first we need some guests. So let's bring out our guests. First up, we have the one and only Megan Kaywood from Starling Bank. Give her a round of applause. Next up, we have the fantastic Liz Lumley. Liz Lumley, please come to the stage. And last, but by no means least, we have the newly crowned commercial director of TSB. Mr. Richard Davies, come to the show, please. All right, we've got drinks. We've got guests. We've got an audience. But audience, i got one question for you. Are you ready? No, 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 I said, are you ready? Let's start the show. All right, Ross. Yeah, so look, I mean, as, as we kind of said, this is, this is kind of our birthday party, so I'm going to suggest that we kick off with a good news story. We all okay with that? Yeah, let's kick off with a good news story. The first one we have um, is about PayPal collaborations in Africa and the US. And the first one comes from Finextra. Um, and this story is the M-Pesha wallet goes online in a collaboration between Safaricom and PayPal. Uh, panel, any thoughts on this one? I, I, I really love this one. So, you know, as I said, we're kicking off a good news story. Um, I think M-Pesa is awesome just from, I mean, for me, a sort of financial inclusion point. They've already enabled millions of people to access the sort of 
formal financial system, um, and that includes 67% of Kenyan adults. Like that, for me, that blows me away. So I think this collaboration is now going to enable M-Pesa users to sort of seamlessly move money between their M-Pesa accounts and their PayPal accounts. So um, it's shaking up the market. The market was previously dominated by Equity Bank. So you had to have an Equity Bank account to use PayPal. So you ended up with sort of brokerages charging what were really high commissions, um, punitive fees, really. So for me, this is something that's shaking up the market and it's providing access to sort of financial um, products and services to people that didn't have them before. Well, like e-commerce, right? Yeah. So e-commerce through mobile money wasn't as easy as it should have been. And actually, PayPal are very good at e-commerce. So this is, you know, starting with an innovation a good 10, 15 years ago with Mpatia now, having that come along and be something that is, is making sense. And the other thing happening in the market, it, we saw that Airtel, Telcom, and Safaricom, they're actually going to look at mobile money interoperability. Mobile no, money it's, in it's going live. It's, it's yeah. happened. It has been legislated. And for the first time ever, you'll be able to send money cheaply and quickly and easily between those telecom operators, which has been a big problem. So, you know, it's not quite the same as, you know, two people having Venmo and two people having a different app. It was literally, this was the people's only way of sending money to yeah. either other people or buying things. So the two things combined, you've all of a sudden got people, uh, you know, far far greater access to money movement between families, friends, and everything else. And also, you can, you know, you are opening up that entire spectrum of online shopping. Yeah. And that is going to make a huge difference to these people who previously, they've got phones, they've got the internet, they just haven't been able to actually buy anything. Yeah, it's relevant in the context of the market. You've got, obviously, the, um, the telcos is exciting because it's easily um, facilitating sort of demand domestic transfers, but then you've got the sort of global aspect, I think, of the um, the PayPal element, and you're connecting millions of businesses and also individuals with, like, you know, global, global e-com. What's interesting to me is PayPal spun out of eBay uh, good, what, two, three, four years ago now? And when that initially happened, you saw you know, the, the share price is more or less split in half. And now you look at the share price of PayPal, it's around $77. It's actually done really well. They've acquired really well. They acquired Braintree and they acquired Venmo. And now they're seeing the partnerships model move into other countries as well. There's something really interesting. Richard, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, I guess that point around splitting for eBay seems to be a big success thing for them. I guess they were kind of being held back by having to be the payment channel for eBay, which has kind of had limited traction in the later years. And I guess just the question for me is, can they sort of be the sort of 10 cents Alipay in places like Africa? Because clearly people like WeChat are also trying to get into those markets as well. So there's going to be some really interesting stuff going on in uh, some, of these, some of these places. Yeah. Megan? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see how PayPal's moving to the space of opening up access to financial resources. It seems to be part of a bigger play that they have. But what this is really doing is it's opening up um, millions of Ken Kenyans to these global marketplaces for financial services. And then what they're doing in other sectors, not only with acquisitions, but in terms of this kind of move to making banking invisible, to making banking type functionality or finances more accessible in the place that you need. So I think it's really exciting to see. Meanwhile in America, um, from the Wall Street Journal, PayPal makes a move towards traditional banking. Ross, can you walk us through this one? So again, I quite like this one. I think I'm, we're having a bit of a PayPal love-in now. Um, <laughs> I think what I like about this, so they're obviously sort of building out the services that they're offering, and they've been doing it quietly, so it's been sort of through push notifications in the app. 
Um, they're offering now debit cards. Um, they'll let um, customers deposit checks instantly from a, a sort of photo deposit um, and loans to customers and small businesses. And I think the point is that all of this can now be managed under one UI. Which is nice, but what you see here is it's cut deals with a Delaware bank to issue the debit cards, a Georgia bank to deposit checks, um, and a Utah bank to make loans. So there's, there's again, a partnership model here. Partnership. It's interesting yeah. to me that for, for a long time, there was a real question about, will PayPal be a competitor to banks? Well, yes, sort of, on the front end, but it's more of a move into that marketplace type of banking, but done a very different way with hundreds of millions of customers. Yeah, but but, don't, don't, sorry, don't you think that, that PayPal is, is kind of, in, in the same bucket as the big bad banks. I mean, right? I mean, well, so a they kind of look and feel like one too. Yeah. A lot of customers. So a number of years ago, uh, when I was at Finextra, we ran the Euro Bankers Association event, EBA Day, for years, and we used to get complaints that you couldn't buy tickets to the show with PayPal because all the banks who were members did not want PayPal involved at all. They were very, very uh, nervous. And then finally, when PayPal got a banking license, they were invited to the show, and they really made up. They really kind of pushed to be part of that world. Um, and I think it was one of them, the EBA Day Berlin or something, where I interviewed uh, of the head of PayPal Europe, where she said, you know, we're now a bank. We are now a bank. We are in this bucket. Um, and when I spoke at South by Southwest seven years ago, I was on this whole, like, future of money um, stream at South by, and so people like Stripe were on, and it was basically just a whole afternoon of a bitch fest against PayPal. Um, so PayPal are really in that sort of big, bad, evil bank bucket, Interesting um, branding perspective to have on them as if you were to, uh, so I saw something from, I think it was uh, one of the research houses a couple of years ago that was saying of the <laughs> quote unquote fintech brands, who have you heard of? And I think some 70 some odd percent of senior executives at banks had heard of PayPal versus who'd heard of uh, Revolution, Starling and, and all of the challenger banks. And it's, it is, and that was down in the 5, it, 10%. It was the very first 70, challenger right? that yeah. banks were afraid of, really. I mean, the interesting thing for me is that, you know, yeah, they are a known brand and certainly in, in the Western world, they are something to be afraid of with big banks. But for me, this isn't that different to the previous story. They're going after a demographic that nobody else is effectively serving. So this new service they've rolled out, apparently, this is according to TechCrunch, the point being that if PayPal's records say that if you uh, use your PayPal account in a way that suggests you do not have a bank account, so for example, you load your PayPal card from a grocery store um, or you, you know, load, load it from a retail location or you use in, in some... PayPal in some way that suggests you don't have a bank account, you're the one being targeted for this new service. So they're quite clearly going after the un slash underbanked, which, which is a similar uh, move. To makes the, it feel Apple. like big bank sort of meets technology company, but somewhere in the middle it kind of started to suck. Like I talked to a lot of people who are ex-PayPal and they say they left because it started to feel too much like a big bank now. And it, it's kind of, it, it's an established legacy company in a lot of ways, yep. but it's an established legacy company whose share price doubled in five years. So they're doing something okay, but like how much runway have they got? Because there's always that, we have a non-exec director in 11FS called Lisa Gansky. And one of the things she always says is, um, it's a, it's a, small gap between aristocracy and bureaucracy. And how do you know when you're in a bureaucracy? It's when everybody can say no, but nobody knows who says yes. And I think PayPal feel like they might be getting there very, very quickly. I'm going to move us on to the next story. Oh, Megan, one point. Yeah, no, I, what I think is really interesting, though, is there's been this quote that people need banking, but they don't need banks. And I think this is really starting to hit on that vibe of like, yes, people need these banking services, and they're still being provided by banks, but the interface for this is PayPal. It's not their traditional bank, right? And I think that's, you know... 
like a resembling kind of the move I think that we've been seeing from the East, really from Asia, but we really haven't been seeing in the US yet is just now really coming to the UK. I, I think that, um, and it feels like yeah. what marketplace banking is intended to be, PayPal has sort of a little bit kind of done. Yeah, and, and Megan's right. You don't need a bank, but you need to be able to take an Uber or you need to be able to book an Airbnb. It's it's these sort of like well, you have life need. goals. You, you, you have can't do that job. if you're financially excluded. And that's what people don't you know, you don't relate it back to the day-to-day. -day. You have a job to be done, indeed. All right, um, and I have a job to do, which is to move us on to the next story and not to put a downer on things. Um, it's about that B word. It's a Brexit story. But let's talk about this one, because um, this headline really got us talking in the office. This one comes from the FT, and the headline here is Threat to Fintech Industry as Young Coders Shun London Over Brexit. So, um, Sarah, um, you've got a background in journalism. <laughs> Wow, never has that sounded quite so accusing. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting one. It, it is obviously one of those stories that you can take both sides of. So the story was sort of built around um, an interview that an FT journalist did with Currency Cloud, who said, oh, well, we're worried about a lack of people, particularly engineers and software developers, coming to London. So as a result, we're going to open another hub in Amsterdam. Um, and the, the response that the FT or the angle the FT took was, oh, well, that means you know, people are worried, they're leaving London, they're concerned about Brexit. But if you turn this on its head, actually, that's expansion. That's Currency Cloud that now has two bases as opposed to one. Um, and I think the interesting thing from my perspective here is that we're not going to necessarily see London disappear and Lisbon rise. I think we're probably going to see specialized centers emerge. So I think we're going to see, like, you go to Lisbon if you want developers, you go to Berlin if you want UX designers, you go to London if you want finance specialists. I mean, there is, you know, some interesting, you know, also if you look at the VC investment into London, that's not really gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. We're still seeing decent levels of that. So you combine the two, I don't think it's going to disappear. I think it's just going to evolve. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point about, you know, different sectors. I mean, London, if you want investment for your startup, London, if you want media, London, you want coders, you want developers, they can be anywhere. I think that's a key point, right? So a bunch of fintechs I've worked with, invested in, they've like had people in places like Serbia, places like Latvia for quite a while. It's not like a new thing to suddenly say it's not just about London. And, and also the UK is not just London. I know we're in London tonight, but you go to Edinburgh, Edinburgh's got the biggest yeah. uh, tech incubator in the UK with Codebase. Like there's a bunch of places in the UK that have got talent as well, apart from London. I think my question on this is, is it Brexit or is it the uncertainty around the Brexit negotiations? I think we're not seeing people leave. What we're probably seeing is a slowdown of talent coming in. And that may well just have stalled until people figure out exactly what the, the, the post-Brexit landscape is I'm, I'm working like. on a project that's looking at the digital skills gap right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but You're see, the perfect person. Like to to me afterwards. <laughs> Anecdotally, though, I just haven't seen that because I came over from San Francisco and I have had five friends in the past six months who've moved over as well. Almost seems like people are flooding in still. And I think it's because there's been this occupation shortage list for product managers and people who are developers. Um, and so the government's trying to be quite active in making it easy to come over. And London is still very trendy. It's like an exciting place to come to to get international experience. And I think that thing about it being a great place to live is actually yeah. something to talk about. And the other thing was I saw the story about uh, Deutsche Bank. Um, so Frankfurt is struggling to be a global financial center. One, because it's not considered a great place to live <laughs> like Berlin is. Um, but two, uh, it, it's they don't have really the banking, the big banks there that are moving into growth mode. And what I think is interesting about the bigger banks is you look at the last decade, banks have been going through this barrage of regulation after regulation post-financial crisis. I've been speaking to some senior executives lately at banks who've gone, okay, we think we're finally there with ring fencing coming to an end, with MIFID 2 coming to an end. The next thing's maybe open banking, but kind of after that, it's, it's growth time. 
Yeah, it's growth time now, and, and we saw um, the Treasury. Um, so uh, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor of the Treasury, um, Chancellor, yeah, um, announced various initiatives um, that I thought was quite interesting at their fintech conference a couple of weeks ago, talking yep. about robo regulation and, and a few other bits and pieces. But I think and going fintech further, it's the things it's the Connect with Work initiative. Um, it's the sort of fintech program through Tech City UK, like lots of fintech friendly initiatives. I think that's the point. As well, you yeah, know, you yeah. link it. We're talking about the UK. Yeah, um, you know, and it's uh, Manchester. It's it's Leeds. Well, I mean, it's Cardiff. Leeds. Cardiff I, I, I really, I push Cardiff all the time. When Crossrail comes in, the centre of Cardiff to Canary Wharf is two hours, and you can pay a developer forty grand a year, and they will not starve to death. If I was going to be a scale-up startup, that's where, and they have seven universities. Sorry, I'm pushing Cardiff. I don't get any payment from Cardiff. You know, when you talk about fintech in the UK, it's not just London. It's it's the whole country. Absolutely. Yeah. So, audience, question. What do you think? Is fintech still going strong in London? Give me a shout for yes. <laughs> and give me a shout for it's all over. There's always one. Yeah. Oh, so we've got, a, we've got a Manchester person in here, but yeah. that's still the UK, right? So the UK's everybody in here is in full belief that the UK is still going strong. So take that, folks, in San Francisco. I love that. I'm going to move us on with, and I have to give like full shout out to producer Laura. She's running around furiously somewhere, no doubt, with a Britney mic. Um, there she is. So this is my favorite part of the evening, the segue to the next story. Andy Murray has volleyed away this concern and served up some UK fintech investment. Okay, you can, you can feel free to applaud and cheer and I really go crazy. Um, so this story was submitted to Finn by Barb McLean, who is a big friend of the show. So hey, Barb. Shout out, Barb. And Barb's going to be at San Francisco, um, is what I understand. So, um, We're going to have to fly her here one of these days. I think so. She's a super fan. Yeah, super yeah. fan. Um, <laughs> For sure. So um, I also actually, big shout out to Laura for this as well, because the first line that she's put in the show notes is that this is more or less a puff piece promoting Cedo's portfolio <laughs> using Murray's name. Um, so I love that. Um, and it's probably yeah. a tax avoidance scheme for Andy Murray. Right. So you want to go straight to EIS, SEIS? I mean, let me, let, me, let me give the background and then at least you can dive right in. I'll throw it to you. So... Um, Murray is on the Cedars advisory board, has been since 2015. Um, he's invested in like 30 UK businesses through the sort of equity crowdfunding platform, recently invested in Investly, which is a marketplace for invoice financing, and Landpay, which is a Zoopla-backed mortgage marketplace lender. Says he has long been interested in, um, in backing these companies that offer tech solutions. So, I mean, Liz, what do we think? Is this sort of simply just PR for Cedars? Yeah, it's PR procedures. I mean, people like Andy Murray have lots of money. And <laughs> I know. The audience looks shocked. He won't adopt me, I'm telling you. But, you know, when having vats of cash is not good from a tax perspective. So you're advised to invest in it. And in the UK, there is, I don't know how big is investment. It's EIS, SEIS. Uh, you know, it's basically you almost don't lose your money if you invest and you to a, a, a compliant company. So, you know, is Andy Murray betting big? Is he passionate about fintech? Has he been advised by a financial advisor that these seem like some good companies to put your money in so you don't pay as much tax? Yeah. And sort of, I suppose, building on the last story, I mean, the state of UK fintech, he's, mm. he's probably not going to lose a whole heap of 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, I was gonna say, that said, he has allowed them to put his name on it. He has allowed yeah. them to mm. say that Andy Murray is invested in these things. Now, I don't know if he's being paid by Cedars, if this is some kind of marketing opportunity. It's like Instagram where he has to put like hashtag ad. Um, but, is, but if he, I'm if sure he, he does. not, and they genuinely think that he has put, he's allowed them to put his name on it and he's told them where he's investing. And, you know, there's not all that many people who'd be like, by the way, this is where I put my money. So, you know, I think that's an interesting, an interesting perspective to take. But, and I think the kind of thing you kind of look at, yeah. On the last article, kind of why is London and the UK still hot for fintech? Uh, tax schemes is part of that, right? Because EIS, SEIS gets people to invest money. So I think it's pretty active angel investment community, particularly London, but also around the UK that actually is kind of helping those sort of companies get their seed rounds done. So I, I, I can't say fair play to Andy Murray for like uh, putting money into 30 fintechs. So I don't you think do it's believe wrong. this, you're not going to get angry at the umpire on this one. Um, <laughs> speaking of games, um, we want to play a quick game with the audience to test their knowledge. Aside from Andy Murray, which other celebrities have invested in the fintech sector? So, um, if it's going to be true, we're going to shout fintech. Can we try that? Fintech? <laughs> and if it's not, we're going to shout not tech. Not tech. That one doesn't work as well, but fintech and not tech. All right, so let's do this one. All right, so the first celebrity that we're going to try is going to be Jizzy. That's correct. So he's known for his investments most recently in Robinhood. Um, what do we think about R. Kelly? Just to clarify, can we keep this in a, in a, in a like fintech context? <laughs> what do we think about whether or not R. Kelly has invested in fintech or not? I think in, I think he's invested in the Girl Scout cookie campaign. Uh, that was that was that was an, that was an alley oop question if ever I heard one. Right. That was. Do, do right. we think that R. Kelly is invested in fintech? <laughs> <laughs> Not tech. Okay, okay, there we go. That's correct. Well he has not invested two of the best of anybody's knowledge. Uh, what about Taylor Swift? Not tech. Yeah, not two. No known investments in fintech. What about uh, David Beckham? Not tech. Fintech. That, that, that was a 50-50 yes. one from the audience. We've split uh, the room. Fifth, split the room in half. Uh, no, there's no known fintech investments. Gary Lineker. So, so I'm going to say about 75% fintech. You are correct. He invested actually in an insure tech startup yeah. uh, called Neos. <laughs> and of course, Nigel from InsureTech Insider is sitting on the front row and is cheering. Um, so of course he is. InsureTech Insider is on iTunes now. Um, what? You, you've got to allow me a cheap plug now and then. Um, all right. What about Snoop Dogg? Good knowledge. Also invested in Robinhood. And uh, his VC firm, Casa Verde Capital, great name, um, has invested a total of $45 million, which will be in early stage startups uh, focusing on the emerging cannabis industry. Doesn't sound as good when you say greenhouse capital, does it? No. no. <laughs> but it, it sort of makes sense, right? The one, given, one for the Spanish the speakers. Kind of. All right. What about the, the, the crazy man of uh, rock and movies himself, Jared Leto? Ooh, so we're saying not fintech. Actually, fintech, another one that invested in Robinhood. Robinhood just went all in for the celebrities. Yeah, they're, they're How about that? All right. <laughs> what about Ashton Kutcher? Fintech. Oh, good knowledge. All right, so he made investments such as Uber, Spotify, Airbnb, and SoundCloud, but he's also in Zen Payroll. Uh, so payroll company, kind of there. Bruce Springsteen? 
Yeah, of course not. He's just oh. the boss. Um, <laughs> he doesn't need fintech. He's the boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he, he's just... He's there, yeah. He, he, he could have anything he wants. Um, all right, Venus Williams. So I have to, I have to interrupt you. I have to interrupt you because I saw this list this morning, and I'm like, "There's no female celebrity, please." Am I gonna find one? I'm gonna find it. And I'm like, "Williams sisters, yes, yeah. yes." You can rely on the Williams sisters. <laughs> Venus Williams, They're I so love great. you. I know. Was it Venus and Serena? It, no, it, Venus Williams invested in uh, Elivest, a digital investor, investment advisor for women. Oh, very cool! Shout out to Venus. Yes. Well All right. Last but not least, number eleven on this list. MC Hammer. <laughs> Fintech, that's correct. He was an angel investor in Square. Which is going to be a great one for Fintech trivia one day. We are going to do a Fintech quiz and MC Hammer invested in Square. Like, you, you definitely can't touch this. All right. Did you know... And you know, can I just say that was fully Simon Taylor, that was not producer Laura. <laughs> that was 100% not in the show notes, but like, I thought I'd throw it away quickly and get away with it. That did not happen, did it? Uh, all right, um, speaking of the investment theme, uh, there's a story here from, uh, well, it actually came from December, but I think somebody else covered it recently, so we picked it up in our news troll. Uh, it comes from Accenture. Uh, it's about millennials and money, the next era of wealth management. And uh, this report, by the way, had probably the worst cover I've ever seen it had like a lady's arm with a tattoo on it and that's apparently what a millennial is any avocado toast yeah and, and you see the, it's, a, it's a gentleman at the end you see him with his tattooed arm in the air jumping for joy with his phone in the other hand and I wish I wish we could project that image oh. no but the top image is him flexing so oh yeah <laughs> very on point yeah <laughs> Does anybody know what was in the report or just what was on the report? Oh. <laughs> so speaking to the content of the report, apparently they say digital is key. Nice one, Accenture. Um, but human touch is also still the key. Nice one, Accenture. Um, apparently 63% want a mobile platform connected directly to advisors. 62% want a platform that incorporates Wait, social so media, who, who whatever the hell 40, that means. Who are the, like, 40% who don't want a mobile? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on earth is this stuff right it was a really really old one but um we, we spoke in length about this type of stuff with hargreaves lansdowne on episode 199 so if you're interested in investing as a subject do check out that episode um but staying with millennials sarah um amazon targets teenagers is the headline here yeah so um the actual headline is even better it's amazon wants to get to teenagers before banks do because that's that's not at all <laughs> wow. thing, is it so basically this is this is like a further development on Amazon's rumored um, checking account um, so there was a rumors a while ago that Amazon is in discussions with various banks about launching an equivalent checking account product and the latest insight into that is it looks like they're going to be targeting uh, targeting teenagers so it's kind of the, the same tactic that's used by incumbents like get them young and keep them um, so once you get them in like you get they become a I'm lifetime that was even better. <laughs> um, once you get, it's hard, once it's hard you get to talk eight, about this in a non-threatening context, isn't it? <laughs> once you give people a, uh, the, oh, I won't even go into the idea. That the quote from the, um, well, I will. The quote from the Amazon MD who said that uh, if you get them in, you get their data whilst they're young. Um, 
The tactic is that if you get people, if you get uh, young people to start using a financial services product, you get to learn more about them, you can sell them more, cross-sell them more products over time is the idea. And that is a tactic used quite widely by some of the incumbent banks. Um, Bloomberg seemed to think there was some kind of financial motivation here, that US teens find it hard to get cheap financial services. That isn't true. It's, it's very easy to get a free checking account in the US. I did some research this morning. Um, it's more a case of, I think, that it's about brand awareness. So uh, it used to be that when you got your first bank account, I would say that 90% of people got the same, a bank account from the same bank their parents had or one of their parents had, right? Kids these days have much broader brand awareness. They're on the internet. They know what's online. So if, if the brand that they know and love is Amazon and they know they can get the stuff they like from Amazon, why wouldn't they get a bank account from Amazon? Can I just um, call out something, Sarah? You just said kids these days. <laughs> this, oh. I mean, but I'm not a kid, so I think that's fair. We'll go into definite. We, oh, the, the, the bit that will be cut out of this podcast is that there was a 20 minute conversation in the office earlier on what a Gen Z was and the age boundaries and who defined it. Uh, my colleagues are nodding at me. Um, I think, I mean, it's interesting. Like, Amazon are as well positioned as anybody to offer the PFM services, the insights into your spending. Yeah. They're as well positioned as anybody to, to get you across that whole spectrum of financial services products. Whether they'll do it or not, I don't know. Richard, are they coming for you? <laughs> you, specifically. <laughs> Me, personally, I have three kids, so yes, they are. Yeah. Um, I, I, listen, I, I was kind of shocked by the thought you might have to pay $10 a month as a teenager in the US to have a bank account. That was like mm. really scary. So I kind of hope that that's not the case. And if it is the case, then if Amazon solves that, that's, that's a good thing. But I guess you kind of look at the environment right now around the, sort of the, the Trump-Amazon kind of feud going on, there's kind of the, the Facebook data privacy thing going on. It's probably not a great environment around people sort of trusting big tech around get my kids young and give them a bank account. So Especially with the tech backlash. Feel quite, the, yeah. the environment's not great, right? Two things on that. So one, it's really easy to get a free bank account in the US. Speaking as an American who's had a checking account in the US, it's not exactly novel. But the other thing is it's <laughs> such an ancient view of like get them young and they'll never leave. It's so hard to switch. Like I feel like now banking services, one, as Accenture points out, at least 60% of millennials want things to be available on mobile. And most of the time, it's so easy to download an app, try it out, switch apps. People are much more likely to try something out and then switch to something else if something better comes along. Mm. I think that view, if you get them while they're young, they'll never leave, doesn't really work anymore. Yeah. And it's, no, it's, it's changing fast, right? Yeah. I mean, those crazy stats about the, the apps that get downloaded, get opened once, and then pretty much never get opened again, right? Yeah. I, I guess, that is it get them young and they'll never leave, or is it get them young and get Can as much out? Can we stop saying get them young? You, you were saying it, Ross. It's not just me. <laughs> I mean, the point being that if you get younger users onto your base, maybe Amazon doesn't necessarily want to keep them for their lifetime. Maybe they just want to bring them on and like, you know. But it, is that worth it for them? I think Megan has a point. I mean, I have a 13-year-old and, you know, I mentioned some game he played. He's like, oh, we stopped playing that three months ago. You know, and they do. That's yeah. the way kids work today. They, they, they play for something. They move on to something else, move on to something else. I mean, yeah, so I could very much see my son opening up an Amazon bank account and then not using it again. Yeah. But, right. uh, and, and, and actually just sticking on the sort of customer perspective, um, what's the enhanced value exchange relative to a bank? Like, what are they going to give me for my data that's better than what a bank's mm. going to give me? I think they want teenagers to, like, in, you know, in, in bring their parents. 
It's like. <laughs> well, so what's interesting is that in the original article, there was some um, some research done which said that uh, 20, 25% of teenagers would actually close their current account and get an Amazon One in exchange. Um, and then some other, you know, some other figures about like 50, 60% of teenagers would try it. But what they said was that when you looked into the data, they would be prepared to do it so long as it came with the additional benefits that premium current accounts did. So yeah. phone insurance, um, travel insurance, you know, other other things that, that come with that kind of premium account experience. So it's not even like off offering them just the account. It's offering them a broader package to start with. Um, which interesting times. An interesting model. It's yeah. going to be an interesting model. Maybe. Yeah, marketplaces are a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Said the marketplace yeah. bank to the room full of fintech people. Have you heard of Starling Bank? No, uh, sorry, cheap plug. Uh, cheap plug. We're all for a cheap plug. We love a cheap plug. Um, have you heard of uh, com? Too good. <laughs> We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. All right, bringing us back into the news. Sarah, there's a story here about a cash rebellion and the fight against cashlessness. Um, it comes from The Guardian, and the headline is, Being cash-free puts us at the risk of attack. Swedes turn against cashlessness. Wow, what a headline. Um, <laughs> so I will, I will do sensible context, and then we can go into sensationalist headlines. Um, Sweden is probably the most advanced country when it comes to cashlessness. They are, they are way, way further ahead than almost anybody else. The concerns expressed are that... Um, so basically, it's, it's the big banks who are, who are driving the cashlessness. So they are stopping handling cash in branches. They're closing ATMs. And in response to all of that, small businesses are no longer taking cash. And it's all kind of a, 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 an ongoing sort of a tsunami of cashlessness across the country. Um, the concern here that was raised by Sweden's central bank is that by doing that, the control of payments falls into the hands of all the private banks. So the central bank no longer has quite so much control over uh, what payments are happening uh, where, is what they said. so evil. Um, there are also the obvious concerns around if everything's fully digital, what happens if somebody unplugs something? What happens if you get hacked? What happens if... Don't laugh. Like, unplugging one server and the what whole thing... What happens if it's a sunny over. day and all the clouds go away? <laughs> Um, <laughs> are you all right? <laughs> um, it's a valid question, Sarah. Could you please the answer? Other, the, other, the, other, the other serious point that was raised before we get onto that. I'm sorry, I was watching the Mark Zuckerberg thing on the Senate in the US. And was Is that removing cash excludes a vulnerable part of the population? They, they find it the people who don't have online banking, people who don't have access to online banking, um, they are pushed into a smaller and smaller group and they have to start paying more and more to, to, to do normal payments. So um, the question here is: Should we should we be pushing towards cashlessness, or is there always or is there always not necessarily a place for cash, but should there always be a defence of cash um, in in you know in society? Um, I don't know what the audience thinks. Like, would you like a totally cash-free society tomorrow? Yes. Um, do you think we should always reserve a place for cash? Yes. Oof. I think that's, that's pretty 50-50. That was 50-50. All right, let's try it just one more time because I want to try and see if there's an actual gap here. You want to keep cash? Yeah! You want to get rid of cash? 
All right, so why? the people that want to get rid of cash, there is about as many, but they just shouted louder. Yep. No, <laughs> it's just, it's not mutually exclusive. Like, I want to be totally cashless, right? But I want the option, yes. you know? Yeah. yeah, like, yeah, I don't want it to be, like, the way the article frames it is now you're beholden to these private banks, and if something mm. happens to them and they go offline, then you're screwed. And no one really wants that, but everyone wants to be cashless, right? So it's yeah. like you want They to want kind of, convenience, yeah. but they yeah. don't want to be beholden to banks. So, I mean, I, I, yeah. really thought, I really thought this was like a Daily Mail headline, not The Guardian. It, it just sounds like one of those. But, yeah, I mean, I like, I like cash to tip people. Because I like knowing that the the waiter in my restaurant is getting that money. Um, but other than that, completely cashless. So in terms of cash, it, we're talking small amounts. I want like a few five pounds here and there. But Richard, yeah. there's a business case for getting rid of cash, right? Yeah. Oh, listen, so I kind of thought, has Sweden like moved to a decentralized ledger already? I kind of thought central banks generally had some control over their payment systems. So kind of surprised by the guy coming saying, hey, these banks are doing this crazy stuff with payments. Uh, well, you um, want to check out Bank of England working paper 605 if you really want to rock and roll even. Um, Is that a plug for Blockchain Insider? <laughs> and that's why you need to subscribe to Blockchain Insider on iTunes, available now. Mm. But like, I just kind of think that it's sort of weird to say that the central bank has no control over the payment system. But is there a place for cash? I mean, sure there is, right? I, but there's so much more room to help people adopt. It, it cash depends. I mean, if, if, if we're framing the need for cash in, in you know, what, 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 what kind of Sarah said, which was like this sort of doomsday scenario where we get this like massive scale hack, that we'll just go back to barter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, nuance, the nuance here is actually that the government central bank was kind of pushing the plug that we shouldn't, it should be preserved, they should be protected, there should always be a, a, a way to make, make sure that cash exists in the system um, and I think that's kind of what the audience was saying absolutely, nobody wants to be told that they cannot use cash, nobody but, wants to be told they cannot use cards or PayPal either. It's, yeah, we don't want to be told yeah. what to do, which yeah. is down my rebels Wait, but cash can, <laughs> cash can exist without paper, right, so yeah. cash yeah. is the idea that money doesn't sit as a liability from a, banking, a bank's balance sheet, on, on a bank's balance sheet this is the idea that I own this thing and it belongs to me and it's physically or digitally unique and and that has some value um, and so you know yes it tends to exist in the gray areas of the economy and yes it tends to be hoarded and yes it's not always great for financial inclusion and yes for merchants it's incredibly expensive and for banks it's even more expensive but that doesn't necessarily mean get rid of it it means solve the problem for people so it's gonna be an interesting one to watch but from cashless society to a cash app. Ross, talk us through the Square Cash app. Simon, are we going to geek out now or what? Um, so I'm this was... tell you how excited they were in the office when this went live. Excited, excitable. We'll have a drink. Um, so what actually, what's the headline here? So the headline, obviously, uh, for anyone that doesn't um, know in the room, is that um, so Square has launched their, their cash app in the UK. And um, cash is like a peer-to-peer -peer money transfer app. But, and it's, it, but, but it's brutal. But it's simple. the sexiest peer-to-peer -peer mobile banking app I've ever seen. I mean, what? This is the point. It was just green and it had numbers. How many times audience participation do you think you can send the same pound between two people back and forth? <laughs> because we, I think, Simon, we tested the limits, right? We got really excited. I, I, I said, I saw the headline, I think, on fintechinsidernews.com, which is available now. Um, and, I, 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 and, I saw, and I saw the headline and I was like, Ross, Ross, do you know Cash App's available? Cash App's available. And he went, oh my God. Do, so, you, do you two need a room? Do I, do, well, <laughs> do you know, I don't need a room. I need a cash tag. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, in joke. So basically, this is this, this is Square's Venmo competitor. Um, it's in a basic state. So you basically take your debit card and you allow you can request payments or you can send payments. The difference here is Square did it. So um, Pingit's yeah. been around for a while. PayPal's been doing this thing forever. But what Who cares? they really nailed was the user experience. Yep. You literally log into this thing and it's brutal. It's like enter your card number. Great. Request money. Send money. And then the screen is just like a number from one to nine, and then you just put, you just hit send or request. Yeah. That's all it does. And then yeah. when you get the request, you can action it straight from the notifications window. Like, I mean, it just works. It's intuitive. It's uh, like. So, Sarah, how was your weekend? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't even. Okay, so all right, this fine. Seventy-fifth time I've heard this. So yeah. I okay, so I I, I did. For Sarah with like showing her all of the different little bits. Um, guys, guys what are the other use cases for this outside of you guys sending a pound back to, back yes. and forth to each other? What else could be done with this? But to be honest, like in San Francisco when Venmo came out in 2012, like it's just so useful. Like you just need to send someone money. It's a fundamental thing that should just be so simple. And so like Starling has Settle Up and Monzo has their peer-to-peer yeah. payments, but you still need to be, uh, you know, you have to have Starling or you have to have Monzo. The nice other, thing about this, to be honest, available. is that it, it's agnostic. It doesn't matter who you use. It's just a basic thing that's so useful. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. not closed loop. And I think yeah. that's the thing. It's yeah. open loop. Yeah, and, exactly. and, it, and it's so brutally simple. And that open loop thing could be the key. So the interesting yeah. thing here as well, it's like that was genuinely supposed to lead you onto another use case, is that we were talking about this earlier, that um, also very well, you know, us sending money backwards and forwards to each other. But theoretically, a small business could get, uh, uh, mm. hang on, cash tag. Is that correct? Cash yeah. tag. Um, and so then they have a hashtag then you go into a small business it's like a coffee cart or it's like I don't know one of those burger places and they have a hashtag so you can pay them there's no reason why you couldn't pay a business instead of each other so that then takes a step out of the process which is what Square have right now which is the dongle or the the machine they have to have to tap so actually this is like step one but if you look at it from a perspective of those of us who spend a lot of time looking at the future of the payments industry. Um, <laughs> there are, this this could be, and then, you know, Ross, weren't you saying that like there's the option there for push notifications and yeah. geotagging, so you walk into a store and it's like, would you like to pay with Square Cash? So, I love yeah. that Sarah Kachansky, always on. So um, if anyone would like to see how the Square Cash app actually works, we do have end-to-end journeys in our competitor insights platform, 11fspulse.com for more information. <laughs> Any thoughts from anybody else on the panel about peer-to-peer peer payments as a use case? I guess just kind of as a summary, what I found fascinating is when I first came over, I would talk to people about Venmo, and I'm like, why isn't this here yet? And everyone's like, that sounds useless. I just put the account number in sort code. I don't need that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, like, will people actually use it? Because to me, it just seems like obvious. But like in the UK, is there actually an appetite for it? That's a really interesting question. Yeah. Richard, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, listen, I think the kind of open loop point is so important. The problem of everything so far has been it's closed loop, and you haven't kind of got the scale for adoption. Um, I think the thing about merchant payment is super interesting. Mm. You can look at Alipay in China and the QR codes and like there's been a massive ecosystem built on top of that. But it's kind of that how do you get it started? How do you kind of get the the real engine going? And yeah. I don't know. I, I, just, I kind of think people are too embedded on the current payment methods to really start to adopt this stuff quickly. I think the, the one thing we haven't touched on as well is the, uh, the Square Cash card, which we haven't seen in the UK, right? But is, is, is fully operational in the US. It allows you to make you know, transactions the same way you would with a debit card, 
um, withdraw from ATMs. So, and, you know. and linking back to that PayPal story, again, it's a layer over the top of banks. So you're using your debit card. And, and we're seeing that, uh, I think, in the US, and, and then this, this strong brand, strong user experience layers over the top and creates something where they just got the user experience right and they focused on that and they didn't worry so much about the infrastructure. So it's not necessarily always an infrastructure-first approach that, that wins. It's can you do something that solves that need, that job for that, for that consumer? Alrighty, um, we have a big and finally story. This one, uh, oh, I love where to start? One. Oh my God, where to start? Has any hands up? Has anybody heard of John McAfee? <laughs> as soon as I saw this on the list, I thought, oh, he's everyone in America knows he's seriously. Dead. John McAfee, famed for the uh, McAfee antivirus, um, famed also for. Briefly running a, a hippie commune slash yoga retreat, and then also a Netflix documentary, which you should probably check out, um, is now charging $105,000, weirdly specific, to promote an ICO. So he charges that for each tweet promoting a digital coin or initial coin offering. Um, and apparently, nothing can match the power of a John McAfee tweet. Um, each tweet costs $105,000, but divided between his 810,000 followers, the cost per investor is only 13 cents. Um, McAfee also has interest in smartphone apps, uh, yoga, and all natural antibiotics, whatever they are. And he ran as a US election candidate for the Cyber Party, then he ran as a libertarian, all in the same election. <laughs> incredible. Uh, is this the final frontier for celebrity crypto endorsements, or is this just um, going to get arrested by the SEC? Can I, yes. can I take it back? So there's the $105,000, which Simon, as you say, is weirdly specific. I'm just wondering, like, so did they reverse engineer? Did they go, uh, I reckon a tweet's worth about 13 cents per follower, and that added up to 105, or did they do it the other way around? Yeah, I don't know how they got to the math. I, trying to speculate what goes through John McAfee's head is, is just Scary fun. place. Yeah. Scary place, that one. I think, I think there are two things going on here. One is, um, you know, Simon probably gets this a lot more than me. I remember about six months ago, someone asked me, how much do you charge to tweet my ICO? I'm like, what the fuck <laughs> yes. are you talking about? Um, in it's it's yeah it's ridiculous um don't you should see my linkedin Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't endorse anything you don't believe in um but john mcafee is you know you mentioned the yoga retreat and this is all he's all been acquitted but you know his belize activity uh, it, it <laughs> resulted in fbi and and people raiding his house and his house mysteriously burning down and neighbors being murdered which he is not responsible for according to the law um but johnny depp is going to play him in the movie this is a seriously dodgy guy and for example a little bit with this you know charging these tweets he was after he left McAfee security he was with a company called I'm going to miss it here a cybersecurity company which investors told the company they 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 were getting pressured by potential investors to disassociate themselves from John McAfee he was actually poison his name for people wanting to invest in this company. So I don't know how he can charge this month. I mean, I'll charge 250 quid per tweet. Um, no, I won't. But yeah, so this is this is ridiculous. This I don't think this is a celebrity issue. This is just a seriously dodgy person issue. You need to walk away now fast. So one of my favorite things is that uh, he made a bet on July the 17th, 2017. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> 
go, go. Uh, one single Bitcoin would be worth uh, $500,000 in three years. And uh, he revised that later. Uh, and when he revised it, uh, he, he had a very interesting tweet. He said, when I predicted Bitcoin at $500,000 by the end of 2020, it used a model that predicted $5,000 at the end of 2017. Well, Bitcoin has accelerated much faster than my assumptions. I now predict that BIR coin, Burcoin, um, at 1 million by the end of 2020, I will eat my own dick if I'm wrong. <laughs> And so there, there is an index you can follow online which, which tells you how likely this is to happen based on the price. So if you go to BIRcoin.top, somebody very handily built a tracker um, that tracks how he's performing against his bet. Um, so he's currently 15.61% uh, below his bet, and so that's the likelihood that he's going to have to eat his own dick. So well done to whoever produced that website. Good on them. Yeah, but you don't know. He had a yoga retreat. Maybe he can... Maybe he found his own dick. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he knows Alrighty. he can come through on the that, bed. That for me, that for me is a, a worthy last word. I think that's a worthy last word. Yoga retreats and all that goodness. All right. On that Sorry. note, that concludes our very special second birthday after dark. We hope you enjoyed the show and don't forget to pick up a party bag on the way out. Just kidding. Um, but do stick around. For <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, sure 11 FS. <laughs> Happy birthday. But do you, stick your around. Your party in those Prosecco bottles. <laughs> do, do stick around because there will actually be drinks and pizza. And don't forget to donate to Kidney Research and pick up a T-shirt. Um, thanks very, very much to our lovely guests. Where can people find out more about you, Liz? Um, so my website is uh, www.girl-disrupted.com. Megan? Uh, probably Twitter, just at Megan Kaywood. Um, or, you know, it's really big. Thank you. Uh, Richard. So Twitter's at RHB Davies uh, or LinkedIn. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Sarah. Here now. Um, outside of that, on Twitter, at Sarah Kishansky. Ross Gert. Yeah, I would suggest probably um, rossgert11fs.com um, or rossgallagher07 on Twitter. Thank you very much. And for me, I'm at SYTaylor on Twitter. Thank you. Uh, please join me thanking our awesome, awesome 11 media team that made this possible. Did anybody see that kick-ass video at the beginning? That's all thanks to Simone. Simone, thank you. For the emoji wall, the logo, the artwork, and contributing towards the video as well, the one and only Amy. Where are you, Amy? Amy, don't this. We've got Terence and Tom, and I see you back there, Martin, doing camera work. Appreciate that, everybody. Our very, old, our very own Carl Pilkington, Petrate, our assistant producer, for all his help. And, of course, the one and only Laura Watkins for planning the show tonight, as well as heading up the show. Many thanks to our amazing audience. Give yourself a cheer. 
If you want to find out more, you can find us at 11fs.com or you can check out Fintech Insider on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and look out for the pictures from tonight. Lastly, we'd love it if you'd give us a five-star review on iTunes. We love reading what you think of the show. Thank you very much and good night.